If you have a Bible, you could turn with me to Luke, the Gospel of Luke. It's in your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And then uh, it'll also be on the screen and in your bulletin as well. We'll be looking at verses 26 through 38 this morning. And we have been looking at the genealogy of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 1. And so it'd be helpful if you could also uh, put a bookmark in Luke 1 and turn to Matthew chapter 1 as well. Uh, We've been looking at the women of Christmas in the genealogy of Matthew Uh, or in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. Why are we doing that during Christmas? Well, Christmas is about a person. It's not about, it's it's wonderful as those things are, Christmas lights and great food and parties and gifts. Uh, Christmas is about a person. More than anything else, it's the person of Jesus. And how do you get to know a person? Well, one way is you look at their family. See what their family's like. And so we've been looking at Jesus' family tree and specifically the women in Jesus' family tree. And this morning we come uh, and we're going to look at Mary's story, uh, the mother of Jesus. And it's been interesting as I've spent a lot of time in this genealogy in the last month or so. And uh, I noticed something this week. Commentators have pointed this out. But Matthew chapter 1 verse 16 is where Mary is introduced. And if and look at it, because you can see this just by simply glancing at it, but there is a pattern that Matthew is using that's consistent all the way through the genealogy until he gets to Joseph. Up until Joseph, it was so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. So-and-so was the father of so-and-so. And then when you get to Joseph, that pattern changes. Verse 16, notice you do not read... Joseph, the father of Jesus, by Mary. But instead you read, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. That's Matthew's way of of saying, this is big. Mary, there's something very significant about this woman and her story, and we need to pay careful attention. And so let's pay careful attention this morning as I read Mary's story and really the announcement of the birth of Jesus to her in in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. This is God's word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, 
your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is God's word. Let me pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help apply this passage to our hearts this morning. Pray with me. Father, honestly, I feel like we've got a lot working against us this morning. We've got a dreary, rainy, cold morning. And so perhaps we're sleepy to begin with. And we've got a story that some of us are so familiar with because we have been reading this story our entire lives. And so we really need your help. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would pierce our hearts with this story. Would you show us and make this story fresh and new? Help us to see this with new eyes. And may we marvel this morning at your goodness to us and at the beauty of the real Christmas story. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Some of you this morning, if you've been coming to the Advent series on the women of Christmas, you're thinking, thank goodness. Thank goodness we're done with those crazy, scandalous stories that we've been looking at. The stories of Tamar and Bathsheba and David that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks. Maybe you're saying, finally we get to the nice, sweet, peaceful Christmas story. I want to suggest this morning that the real Christmas story is not nearly as cute and peaceful and nice as we've made it up to be. It's actually quite crazy if you slow down and really ponder and think about the story. You see, in the real Christmas story, Mary had her life gloriously wrecked and turned upside down by this baby named Jesus. I mean... Think about her story. The angel comes to her and says, you will be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine what her parents thought? I mean, she had to have been thinking with this angel giving her this announcement and as she's hearing the angel announce this to her, surely she had to have thought, I hope you're going to my parents and telling them what's going on. They're never going to believe me. Or I hope you're going to Joseph and you're going to tell him what's happening. And please tell me, Gabriel, that you're going to the community and you're going to tell them before I start to show. I mean, can you imagine Joseph telling his buddies this? Trying to tell them what had happened. Oh, I can explain everything. She's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. If someone came up with this story today, we would put them in the hospital. (laughs) We would send them away if they were part of our family, and Hallmark wouldn't touch the story. 
And yet we try to gloss over it and we've cleaned up the real Christmas story with our nice nativity, peaceful nativity scenes and Christmas pageants. But when you slow down and really think about the story, yes, it looks different, I agree. But in reality, it's just as scandalous. In reality, it's just as crazy, so scandalous that her betrothed husband Joseph almost divorces her and it takes an angel to talk him out of it. So we're going to look at the Christmas story this morning through Mary's story. And we're going to see what Mary's story teaches us this morning. What we'll learn is that Mary's story teaches us three things. Our story teaches us something about the gospel and grace, something about faith, and lastly, something about surrender. And so let's look at those three headings this morning. Number one, Mary's story teaches us something about the gospel. Look at verses 26 and 27. It's really interesting if you think about the Christmas story just as a whole, chapters 1 and 2 in the book of Luke, almost every character in the Christmas story is introduced by their pedigree or introduced by their title. Let me point out a couple of verses. Verse 27, Joseph from the house of David. Verse 5, Zechariah. He's introduced as the priest of the division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, the daughter of Aaron. Go over to chapter 2. Simeon and Anna are introduced as prophetic, prophetic figures. And Anna is said and introduced as being from the tribe of Asher. Every character that Luke introduces in the Christmas story, he gives their credentials. But when it comes to Mary, those credentials seem to be absent. He simply tells us her name was Mary. And so she lives in this insignificant town that no one's ever heard of, far away from the centers of power of Jerusalem, and her family origin is never mentioned. And this is Luke's way of telling us that what is most significant about Mary is her insignificance. God's own son, the Messiah, was born not to rich people and powerful people and not in a palace, but was born to her, a nobody in the middle of nowhere from a no-named town. And so then the question is, so what? Right? That's the question we always want to be driving towards application. What does this teach us? A couple of things let me draw out. First of all, the Christmas story, the real Christmas story, confronts our snobbery. Tim Keller says that the announcement of the incarnation comes to a woman in a world that despised women. God comes into the world through the womb of a poor, unwed Jewish teenage girl, and in doing so, God is deliberately working with people that the world despises. He goes on, from the first witnesses of the nativity to the resurrection, Jesus came to people that the world says you can't trust and you should look down upon. 
You see, the point that Luke is trying to get across is that the Messiah was not born in Jerusalem in the palace of the governor Quirinius and to his daughter. And he could have been. But no, he was born to a nobody named Mary. And Mary is meant to be a picture of us all. Mary is a picture of humanity. Christmas confronts our snobbery, the real Christmas story, because it comes to us and it says that we're all poor, that we're all desperate, and that we all, more than anything else, need to be rescued by Jesus because of our sin. It also confronts the real Christmas story and forces us to examine our relationships. I mean, think about it. This is true of me. Who are we drawn to in our context? We are drawn to movers and shakers. Pretty people. People of power. People that have connections that can give me connections and can open doors for us. But when you really start to understand the Christmas story, one of the things you see is God's heart for the lowly. That's what we've seen throughout this entire Advent series God moves towards the lowly and brokenhearted. And when you see that, you start to realize that in reality, in the real Christmas story, it confronts us that we're the ones that are really poor. And that when that makes its way down into your heart, it causes us and should push us to think about our relationships and should push us towards the broken, outcast, needy, and those who the world has forgotten. But the other application under this first point is that this story shows us the very heart of the gospel. Look at verses 28 and 30. The angel tells her not to be afraid because you are favored. And the word favored in the original language, which is the Greek, is the word that's normally translated grace. Isn't that interesting? And so what this means is that the angel is not saying, Mary, I'm coming to you because you're God's gift to the world. You're so sweet and you're so nice and you're so great and good that we're going to give you this incredible gift of letting you carry the Messiah and be the mother of Jesus. No, no, no. It's grace. Rather, the angel is saying, you have been graced, Mary. You are a nobody in a no-named town in the middle of nowhere and God has set His grace upon you. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You receive it. Not because you've got it all together and you're better than everyone else, but because God has chosen to favor you. And so the real Christmas story reminds us this morning That if you are a Christian this morning, it's not because you're better and well-connected to other people. It's not because you're prettier than other people or more successful or accomplished or smarter or more moral than everyone else. If you're a Christian, it's because God came to you first. It's because Jesus initiated with you. You see, the true miracle of Christmas is that like Mary, God's presence can come into our lives as well. And so this morning, if you're bored with Christmas, and 
if you simply find yourself every Christmas season simply going through the motions? Could it be that it's because you think too highly of yourself? Or let me say it another way. You know that you're starting to grasp the meaning of Christmas and the real Christmas story when you're filled with awe and amazement and even surprise. Even surprise at what God has done for you. You know you're starting to grasp Christmas when you say, it's a miracle that even someone like me has been chosen and loved and embraced by God's grace. Have you experienced that? Secondly, this story teaches us, Mary's story teaches us something about faith. Look at verse 29. It says she was greatly troubled and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Notice what she doesn't say. Mary doesn't say, this is the greatest thing I've ever experienced. She doesn't say, oh, how wonderful. I have an angel that's speaking to me. I'm all in. No, she doesn't do that. She's troubled. The word discern there is an accounting word that means to make an audit. And so it means to ponder. And so Mary is thinking this through. You know, people often think uh, Christians, uh, if, if you're a Christian, then you don't think. <laughs> that you're just naive and that it's just a blind faith and you ask no questions. Mary shows us that that's not true. The Bible shows us that that's not true. Read the Bible and anyone who has faith, you'll see them wrestling. Think about the Psalms. You'll see them wrestling with God. And that's what we see Mary doing. She's questioning. She's using her brain. She's thinking. She's using her reasoning. And she gets really specific in verse 34. How will this, this doesn't make any sense. Wait a minute. How, how will this happen again? I'm a virgin and you're saying I'm going to be with child. And it's interesting, if you look earlier in Luke 1, and Keller pointed this out, I'd never seen this before, but you'll notice the angel in Luke 1 appears to Zechariah, and remember, he has an announcement for him. It says, your wife Elizabeth will bear a son in her old age named John the Baptist. And remember, Zechariah was very doubtful and basically says, how can you expect me to believe that since we're so old? And you remember what the angel responded? He responded by making him mute. A preacher who couldn't preach until John the Baptist was born. We get to Mary. She's hesitant. She asks questions and yet the angel doesn't blink. What's the difference? Well, what we learn is that the Bible has this very wonderfully nuanced view of doubt. Zechariah is closed-minded. He'd already drawn his conclusions. He was asking questions, but he didn't really want answers because he had already decided that it was impossible. Mary, on the other hand, is open to truth and to having her 
thinking challenge. We see, look, verse 37. The angel says, nothing is impossible with God. Then right after that, verse 38, look at how she responds. Okay. Then let it be according to your word. Mary was willing to give up control if she could be shown that the truth was something other than she had originally thought. Mary was having a hard time. She thought that this uh, was unthinkable and hard to believe, but she didn't stop the conversation. And that's the difference. She sought more information. Verse 38 again, let it be according to your word. She's not saying there, oh, it's crystal clear. Thank you for just, I'm all good now. I'm all in on this plan and I'm excited to be a part of it. No, it's not what she's saying. She's saying, this doesn't really make sense to me, but you're God and I'm not. And because you're God, I will continue to follow. And I will continue to pursue you even if I don't understand completely. And we see her faith continue to be worked out into chapter 1 when she meets with Elizabeth. And so Mary application shows us what real faith looks like. And one of the things we see is that faith looks like asking a lot of questions. Engaging God. And all of us, we, we all have questions And we want this to be a place at our church where people can come and bring their questions and ask and think about what they believe and ask questions about the Bible and about who God is. And if you've never looked at this story, the Christmas story, and asked or thought that this is ridiculous and impossible, then you're not really listening very closely to this story. The question is not, do you have questions? That's a given. The question is, what kind of questioner are you? Are you a questioner like Zachariah, who's closed-minded and totally wants to be in control and has no room for anything else? Or are you open with your questions like Mary? You see, that's the question. What kind of questioner are you? Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't been to church in a long time and you're trying to figure out what you believe about Jesus and about Christianity. We're glad you're here. What's your posture towards Christianity? Are you closed off? Or are you willing to give up control if you learn that the truth is something other than you originally thought? The other thing we learn about faith is that it's gradual and takes time. And we see that in Mary, don't we? Mary moved forward even when she didn't have all of her T's crossed and her her I's dotted. And we don't think that way. People often come to Christianity and think, I can't move forward with Christ unless I have every single thing figured out and I have all of my questions answered and I've got a watertight airtight argument it's all or nothing no often faith is a process we see it for Mary Mary shows us that it's okay to be afraid it's okay to not have it all figured out and still move forward towards God your God I'm not 
I don't have it all figured out, but I will continue to follow and ask questions and engage you. You see the difference? Lastly, Mary's story teaches us something about surrender. Verse 32. The angel says of Jesus, notice all the language here, he will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him to the throne of his father David. He will reign over you. His kingdom will not end. And did you pick up on verse 31? That's easy to miss. But did you pick up on the fact that Mary and Joseph didn't even get to name their child? I mean, think about that. If somebody came to you in the hospital and said, Hey, I've got the name for your child. Don't worry about it. The name is this. Whatever. You'd be offended by that. They don't have that authority. And so what we see very vividly right from the very beginning is the angel is telling Mary, this child will rule over you, not the other way around. This child, Jesus, is the king, and you will be his servant. And notice Mary's response again. I'm amazed by her response in verse 38. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. Again, this is not a blind obedience. Think about my last point. This is thoughtful obedience. She's grounded her obedience in who God is and who she is. She says, God is creator. And I am the creature. And because God is the creator... He demands and he gets all of my service. He deserves my service. And so Mary teaches us that the Christian life is not a negotiation. But it is a surrender. The Christian life is going before the throne of God and releasing your clenched fist and opening your hand and taking your hands off your life. And I want you to think about this with me. It's, it, let's ponder this. I would think we're on pretty good ground, even though it's not explicit in Scripture, that this is not the kind of life that Mary dreamed about when she was a teenager. I'm sure as she plotted out her life, it was, I will meet and marry a nice Jewish man, we'll have a nice home and raise children and we'll have grandchildren. And have you ever stopped to think about Mary's life? Everybody wants to be the mother of Jesus in the Christmas pageants. Really? Think about her life. For the rest of her days... She had the stigma of being an unwed mother in a very religious community. Not only that, the world hated her son. And her son caused a division, not only in household, but in the entire world. Not only that, let's keep going. She had to deal with the pain of losing a child. John chapter 19 We learn that Mary was at the foot of the cross when Jesus was having nails driven through his hands and feet. Her son, 
And she watched her son be hung on a cross. I can assure you that this was not her dream for her life when she was a teenager. And so what Mary shows us is that when you surrender your life to Jesus, God will rearrange your plans. When you surrender your life to Jesus, following Jesus means that you give up your plan to be part of his plan. It means that you give up your story to be part of his story. And if this doesn't sound terrifying, then you're not listening. That's terrifying. And honestly, I don't like it. Because what I want is to make sure that his plan is okay with my plan. I want God's plan for my life to end well. I want God's plan, don't touch my family. I want God's plan to involve my success and my comfort. And so then the question is, okay, how do we do this? How can we surrender to God in this way? How do we take our hands off of our life and open up our clenched fists? Better yet, let's ask this question. Why in the world would we want to? Why would we want to surrender to God and to Jesus in this way? Lots to say, but the answer very simply is because of God's deep love for you. Our greatest and deepest motivation for surrendering and following Jesus is because of what he has done for us. Nearly 20 years ago, former President George H.W. Bush, who passed away a couple of years ago, wanted to sponsor a Filipino boy named Timothy through Compassion International. He first had to come up with a pseudonym, and his pseudonym was George Walker. That was necessary because if word had gotten out for security reasons that this boy was interacting with the former president, he could have been in danger. And if you're familiar with Compassion International, you obviously sponsor the child financially, but you also correspond through letter writing and gift giving with the child and Bush had to mask his identity in this process and all the communication between them had to be very subtle um, and it would go through the president of Compassion International, Wes Stafford. And Wes Stafford said at one point that Bush was starting to push the envelope a little bit and wrote in one of the letters, we're going to my son's house for Christmas and it's a big white house. In Washington, D.C. Bush's sponsorship began in 2000 in, at a Christmas concert. And there were Christian musicians, and you know, they come out if you went to the Andrew Peterson concert in halftime or intermission, and they'll make a, a, a plea for Compassion International and ask you if you want to sponsor a child. And George Bush Sr. raises his hand and says, I want one. And his entourage and security didn't know what to think of it. Is this possible for us to even do this? And he says, I want to sponsor a child. Within two weeks, Bush had sent his first letter to Timothy. And he had drawn a picture for him. And again, Stafford, the president of Compassion International, said he was everything he wanted sponsor to be. 
He was involved and engaged in the child's life. At one point, he learned that this child liked art, and so he sent a ton of art supplies and paint and crayons and sketch pads to this boy in the Philippines. Well, years later, you know, his health starts to decline, and so he had to turn over his sponsorship. And he turned it over to a staff member in Compassion International by the name of Angie Lanthrop. And in 2010, Angie Lanthrop and her family went over to visit Timothy, who was now 17 years old. And she's the one that told him that his sponsor was the former president of the United States, George Bush. She said he was speechless and dumbfounded. And then she says this. I thought, you know, to a child in poverty... It's amazing enough that anyone would even care about them. But it was beyond his wildest imaginations and even his ability to comprehend that the President of the United States knew his name. It's a wonderful story. What I want you to get this Christmas and what I'm trying to convince you of throughout this Advent series that is wonderful and moving as that story is, it doesn't hold a candle to the story of Christmas. I mean, think about the Christmas story. The creator of the universe doesn't just stand off at a distance and write letters to us. He kind of did with the Bible, but generally, no. He took on real flesh And moved into our poverty. So that he could rescue us from our poverty of sin. And make us whole again. And the the Christmas story. God doesn't just know our names. Isaiah says that he has our names written. And engraved on the palm of his hands. Friends the only way you're ever going to be able to take your hands off your life and surrender. Is when you say goodbye to your little stories and finally believe that Jesus is the story. Jesus must become greater. He must become better so that we get to a point where, because Jesus is so good and so beautiful, that we gladly trade our little stories for his story. You see, the Christmas story. It's proof that you can trust Jesus with your life. Because the Christmas story really is better. Because Jesus really is better. And my question for you this morning is, will you surrender to him? Will you surrender to Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank you for... This time of year and we confess and ask you to forgive us for being so familiar with the Christmas story that we often go through the motions and we are not moved by it like we should be. And so help us to ponder what we've heard today and help us to be moved by your mercy and your goodness. Would you make those things more real to our hearts than ever before this Christmas season? In Jesus' name, amen.